0: Service.
1: Just a minute, I think. I not.
0: Welcome to the Divine Service, Didache Divine Service, session number 30, the second of three on the sacrament of the altar, today the feeding of the 5,000, and what is the benefit of this eating and drinking from the catechism. Let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you have refreshed us with the body and blood of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. Grant that this heavenly food which we have received will strengthen our faith, that we may bear all crosses, sickness, and trials with patience and trust, until you grant us deliverance, peace, and health. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Before turning to John chapter 6, I wanted to conduct a little bit of review of last week by focusing on some of the liturgy that highlights uh, the theology of the Lord's Supper. Uh, In our spoken order that we observe here in the Didache Divine Service, it follows exactly the text of the Divine Service at the sacrament when it is sung. So if you recall, the pastor either in front of the altar or behind the altar says, the Lord be with you. Notice the language of the real presence. So... He is praying for you that you would receive the Lord in faith through the word that is preached and then in the supper through the body and blood of Christ given. So the Lord be with you and you respond and also with you or, and with your spirit. So I am proclaiming and praying for you that which is the promise of the supper, that the Lord is with you in his body and blood And you are praying and proclaiming to me that according to the promise of the Lord as a minister, the Lord would be with me to minister to you. So notice the communal, the communal, communion nature, even of the greeting. The Lord be with you and also with you. And then lift up your hearts. The psalmist says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So this lift up your hearts, that is the posture of faith that bends the knee before the Lord and looks to him to fill us up with forgiveness, life, and salvation. So you can think of the little birds in the nest who are, you know, opening up their mouths wide that their mama might put the food in, you know. So the Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. One of the names for the Holy Communion is the Eucharist, in which we are giving thanks to God for the full bounty and gambit of salvation that he has given to us and provided for us in his body and blood. And then what follows that, it is truly meet, right, and salutary, those familiar words, are part of what's called the proper preface. Propers in liturgical speak are those things that change from week to week. So the different readings are the propers. It's not the same Old Testament reading each week. It's not the same epistle. It's not the same gospel. So also, the proper preface uh, includes those that language that calls us to sing the Sanctus, Holy, 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 Lord God of Savio, and it changes according to the seasons of the church year. Since we are Lutheran Christians of the Western Catholic tradition, the language of our proper prefaces that call us to sing Holy, Holy, Holy is some of the oldest texts in the uh, church year. So you'll hear again this morning, after the introduction, which is roughly the same, it is truly good, right, and salutary that we should in all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, and most especially, now here's what's proper to Eastertide, most especially are we bound to praise you on this day for the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ the very Paschal Lamb, who is sacrificed for us and bore the sins of the world, and so forth. So that language of the proper prefaces are some of the oldest in the church's liturgy, and it moves swiftly then to the singing of the Sanctus. Now, I'm going to to talk about those canticles of the divine service at the end, but the Sanctus, you say sung after that proper press, therefore with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth. That is the oldest canticle in the Old Testament and New Testament church. Notice its Trinitarian shape, holy, holy, holy. Lord God of Sabaoth, the hosts of heaven, Heaven and earth are full of your glory. And the idea is that in the Lord's Supper, you know, why is that canticle sung? Because heaven is opened up to earth as Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior, gives us his very body and blood. It's an angel song on the one hand, holy, 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 because Isaiah saw them singing this canticle, When he was called to be a prophet, heaven was open to him and they were singing antiphonally, holy, 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 back and forth to each other. When he was called to be a prophet, a preacher, to speak the word. So it's in the Lord's Supper because heaven is open to us here. The angels of heaven are singing because the glory of God's mercy and salvation has come down from heaven to save us. To strengthen us, to nurture us. Uh, it's interesting, I called it the oldest canticle because it goes all the way back into the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, once a year, when the high priest would enter into the tabernacle, and he would go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies. He would take the blood and the water of atonement. Remember the blood and water out of Jesus' side? And he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, and the two gold cherubim, those angels, are gazing down upon that place where the blood and water was poured to make payment, atonement for sin. And then he would come out from the veil and go out to the congregation and sprinkle the congregation with the forgiveness of sins. On the high priest's um, turban, there is a band, Holiness to the Lord. And Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of Sabaoth was part of the Day of Atonement liturgy when that Blood of Atonement was taken into the Mercy Seat, a picture on earth of heaven and the presence of God in the heavens. So that's why that sanctus is part of the communion liturgy. It is the climax of the divine service. Holy, 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 because we're joined with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, singing praise to the triune God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll recognize language then from the Passover and from the the, um, uh, Palm Sunday, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, Hosanna to the Son of David, which means save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the Passover psalm was ascribed to Jesus as they confessed him to be Messiah, Savior, and the Son of David and cried out to him. So that song to us, and as it builds up to us in the preface and the proper preface, the Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Holy, holy, holy. And we sing that. Again, with angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven, which would include those beloved Christians who have gone on before us. So I tell people that they are the closest to their departed loved ones who have died in the faith when they are gathered together at the altar and when they are singing that divine service than at any other point on earth. Uh, For we sing with all of the company of heaven the praise of the Lamb. So, I wanted to give you that as a little bit of an introduction because it, it, it accentuates the real presence that we were talking about last week. It also accentuates uh, what is really happening through the body and blood of Christ that was offered up into death upon the cross and shed for us and now offered in the supper is what opens heaven to us. We are partaking of, as we'll hear today, the true bread that came down from heaven. Okay. Okay. Wally? Uh, the, the high priest would make sure that
1: he would be blessing himself personally. The high priest before you go
2: into the holy
0: yeah, folly. Well, he was he, he was sanctified at the laver, the wash basin outside, hands and feet. We talked about that with respect to Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So,
1: so that high priest
0: I, I don't want to go there because I want to stay on target here. There's a, an aspect of that, but I, I, for the sake of time, I have, to, I have to press forward. Kathy? John chapter 6. Everyone should turn. Well, there is one God in three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Mm hmm. All right, so, uh, but I am wearing the chasuble today just to talk about that a little bit. White robes are always symbolic of Christ's righteousness that covers the sinner. But a, a plain white robe or the white surplice over black is for all the baptized. So we're all dressed in the white robe of Christ's righteousness. Whether You'll see the choir... None of them are ordained. Well, a couple of them are ordained. uh, But they are wearing the white robes over the black as sinners clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The minister represents and is in the stead of Christ. And so the office is represented by the stole. And the chasuble, as it is called, is the vestment of the presiding minister at the Holy Communion. And so here, for Eastertide, it is the white and the gold. And uh, in this chasuble, the symbol has an alpha and omega. Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And then the chi roll, two Greek letters imposed upon themselves. The chi looks like an X for Christos, Christ, and then the roll for King, Christ the King. So I thought I would wear it today because the adornment of the minister helps to highlight this idea that in baptizing, in forgiving sin, in preaching, in giving the Lord's body and blood, he stands in the stead and by the command of Christ to do this. Now, I have in your outline here, we're talking about the benefits of the Lord's Supper, which we've already been talking about last week. And... I've got a number of bullets, some of them are questions, some of them are statements based on the feeding of the 5,000. And I'm going to start by reading the first 15 verses, and then we'll go through these opening bullets. John chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. Signs are John's word for miracle. And Jesus went up on a mountain and there he sat with his disciples. What prophet in the Old Testament often went up to the mountain? Moses. Now the Passover... A feast of the Jews was near. Remember the Passover, the slaughter of the Passover lamb. We talked about the institution of the Passover last week. So John, the apostle and evangelist, is careful to remind us of that here. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, whose feast day we just celebrated, by the way, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this, he said, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. This is some, I'm going to put together a catalog of all of the times in the Gospels that Jesus pretends. Here's one of them. Where shall we buy bread? Okay. So it's a great catechetical technique. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread, a denarius would be like a day's wage, is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Now notice how Philip and Andrew are both expressing need, a need that they cannot Satisfy. Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. Notice the language. He took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed to them. Same sequential pattern that you have in the Lord's Supper. He took bread, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying. And the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. Here, notice how, have them sit down. Now, he gives them the bread to distribute, to see the handing over. Jesus is the minister, but he hands it over to his under-shepherds. In this case, the apostles, who, in his stead, Give the gifts. So when they, uh, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted, verse 12. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets, one for each of the 12 apostles. We also think of the 12 tribes of the congregation of Israel. 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, that Jesus said, uh, that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. That's why I asked you about, who's the prophet that so often went up on the mountain? Moses. It's through Moses that God fed them with manna in the wilderness. Through Moses that God gave them the Torah, that foundational word of the five books there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay? Uh, so when Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me, saying things like I say and doing stuff like I do, when he feeds the 5,000 with these few loaves, And fish in the wilderness. This is the prophet, who is, of course, also the Messiah. All right, some some bullet points here. The liturgical setting and context for reading the Gospels in the early church. As the Gospels began to be copied and circulated among the congregations of Asia, Africa, and Europe, they soon became the principal reading at the divine services for the New Testament church. Who knows what the principal reading of the Old Testament church was? The Torah, that's correct. And they would also read the prophets, similarly like we read the gospel as the principal reading, but we also hear from the epistles. Why was the gospel uh, prominent? Because the Holy Gospel reading showed Jesus to be the fulfillment of the Old Asia, Africa, and Europe. There's an interesting uh, reference in verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee. Now, that's how it would have been known by the Christians, the early Christians in Palestine. But some of those further away in Asia or even in Europe, calling it the Sea of Tiberias, its other name after the emperor, okay, they would be able to identify this. So the, the apostles... And evangelists in writing the Gospels are writing it them not only for understanding, but for then catechesis and use in the public services of the congregations so that they would have a faithful testimony of what Jesus both said and did. Okay? Second bullet In the early days of the church, some Christians in Palestine would have been present at the events of the Gospels record. Uh, I am a believer that the Gospels were written much sooner or closer, I should say, to the events than some so-called modern scholars, who don't even believe in Jesus anyhow, uh, want to say. And the reason they want to push the date w- date way late so in some instances into the second century, which would be the 100s, is because then there's nobody around who can firsthand verify the miracles that took place, the death and resurrection that took place. But for those early Christians and the the second generation who knew the early Christians, you know, uh, you have, so let's see, who can I pick? Well, here, Mary and Wally, you're members of the congregation, so you've heard Pastor Bender preach and teach. But then you also have Joe and Elizabeth, that's the next generation, And then you also have your grandchildren. So the the faithful transmission of the words and works of Jesus, it was first by preaching alone, and then the apostles and evangelists are writing it down. And so you'd have people that have either been there, like you were there in the first place, and then maybe the next generation, Joe and Elizabeth, was there. Maybe the grandchildren weren't there, but they were with you in divine services to hear the words and works of jesus recorded so when the gospels come out this language has, breathes the air of familiarity it's not the first time they've been hearing these accounts of the signs that jesus performed and so forth yes,
2: yes. Up in his 12, his 12 yet?
0: say it say again
1: his chariot, gold
0: chariot with his 12 faith. Oh, oh, oh I, I'm, I'm not in Islam right now. <laughs> no, but was
2: there such a thing as Islam yet?
0: Uh, no, because that comes, that comes in the uh, fourth century. Oh, okay. So Islam did not exist at this time. Okay. Yeah. Well, but since you bring up Islam, all right, let's talk just a couple of sentences. Christianity is an historical religion, unlike Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, which are non-historical. What do I mean by that? The foundation for Christianity are events, incarnation, birth, death, bodily resurrection of Jesus. And unlike uh, Islam, thousands witnessing the events that the Gospels record. And that's part of my point. Luke records in Acts that these things were not done in a corner. All right, bullet three. The words of the Gospel, and I tried to point this out as we went through this reading, reminded them, as they should remind us, of language that was central to their liturgy, such as the Lord's Prayer and the words of institution, One of the important things about the liturgy, and we're putting the Lord's Prayer in that, we're putting the Creed in that, we're putting the words of Jesus in the Supper in that. One of the importance of the liturgy is how it connects us with all of the generations of the baptized faithful that preceded us. So we are firmly anchored in words and works of God that are changeless and eternal and that give meaning and purpose to our life in the midst of the chaos that we see around us. The narrative of the feeding of the 5,000 describes a liturgical scene of a large congregation gathered around Jesus to be taught and fed by him. The miracle proclaims him to be the bread of life The miracle is not the end in itself. That's why in John's gospel it's called a sign. A sign teaches. A sign directs us to something. So in this case, the sign or the miracle proclaims him to be, quoting from the text that will follow, the bread of life that gives the promise of forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation to those who receive him. Now, I don't have this written in the notes here, but... People, even in Jesus' time, misunderstood the miracles of Jesus. In the case of the feeding of the 5,000, they're going to follow him around the Sea of Galilee, thinking this is really a great deal. If he's our king, we'll never have to work a day in our lives. We'll always have food in our fridge. Sounds familiar to today, you know there's free college, there's free health care, there's free this and there's free that, and you don't have to work for anything. That's not the point of Jesus' miracles. I'm the bread of life. Once he pushes that point home, as we'll see in his catechesis, well then, almost everybody leaves him. You mean, you mean being a Christian is about worshiping you? Yeah, that's what I mean. Oh, well, then who needs that? If it's not going to be about being a Christian, it's about getting whatever your heart desires, whatever the appetites and cravings of your flesh are. All right, I'm in. Sign me up. Which is not Christianity at all. Notice the action. Took bread, gave thanks, gave it to them, just as in the Lord's Supper, and we had noted that. Notice the number of baskets. Twelve for the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles, enough to fully supply the church. And the narrative highlights the church's total dependence upon Christ. You know, where shall we find bread for so many? And Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. Now, I'd like you to turn ahead. Uh, We aren't going to take time for Jesus walking on the water, but that takes place immediately following this, and in it he says, I am. So he confesses himself to be the Lord himself, who had called Moses at the burning bush. Instead, we'll skip ahead to verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, those who had experienced the miracle, they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You had a free lunch. That's why you sought me. Do not labor for the free lunch which perishes. You may not have that wording in your Bibles, but... Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. So you notice how he's talking, the sign, that was food that they were given. But that was a sign of the greater food, namely himself, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. He is my man. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. Then they said to him, now tell me, what is the audaciousness of this question? What shall we do that we may work the works of God?
1: What's Yeah. He is God.
0: He is God. But notice how they're dwelling upon their works. Jesus answered and said to them, and he turns it around this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And who's the one whom God the Father sent? But his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So they're talking, what work shall we do? And Jesus says, God's work is to bring you to faith in his son. They catch that, and then that he's talking about believing in him. Verse 30, therefore they said to him, Now here's an even more audacious question: What sign will you perform then? that we may see it and believe you. What work will you do? Now, what's audacious about that?
2: They had just seen it. He had just
0: performed a miracle, which is the reason why they followed him around the Sea of Galilee in the first place. He fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. What sign will you do that we believe in you? How many people today, if I had seen the miracles, I would have believed. No, you wouldn't have. Even here, they misunderstood the miracle. And then they brag about their pedigree. Because they're all, this is a Jewish congregation. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Yes, but most of them died in impenitence and unbelief. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. So Moses was not the source of the manna in the wilderness. God was, but even more, that manna pointed to the true bread that the father would give. All of Jesus' catechesis is funneling down to pointing at himself as the source of life namely the bread that comes down from heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So according to verse 33, the true bread of heaven is a person, namely the person of God's only son. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always, indicating they still don't get it. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. So according to that name, I am the bread of life, what does he give or what is he the source of? Life. And by using the term bread, he brings to mind the notion of food or a food that gives life. I am the food that gives life. He who comes to me, he keeps the imagery going, shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, returning to these bullets, first one we've answered, the multitude followed him around the Sea of Galilee because their bellies were filled. The works that they were focusing on was their own works, but the work of God, in verse 29, is faith, faith in his Son. What were the people asking for before they would believe in Jesus? A sign, a miracle. What is the bread? He is the bread. What does he give life? What are hunger and thirst describing in verse 35? Hunger and thirst. Because he says there in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. So what is that hunger and thirst really describing? You'll never hunger. So what are you hungering for? What are you thirsting for? That if you receive him, you will no longer hunger for that because you'll be satisfied. Salvation, Salvation Tom. Yeah. Forgiveness of sins. Life. Salvation from the misery of sickness and hardship and death and separation from God. All of the maladies of life. That whoever comes to him shall never hunger Whoever believes in him shall never thirst, because he will satisfy us with forgiveness, life, and salvation. So our hunger will be taken away, will be satisfied, and our thirst quenched. What is to be the focus of a Christian's faith?
1: Christ.
0: Christ. This is an easy question. Jesus. The singular focus of our faith. Jesus, who is the Son of God, incarnate by the, of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, who suffered, died, and rose again from the third day, who forgives our sins and gives us to eat of his body and drink of his blood, boiling it all down, Jesus is the object of faith. And here, faith and worship are synonymous. Worship is faith, trust, reliance, dependence upon Jesus. Those people that fell at Jesus' feet throughout his ministry and worshipped him did so because they believed in him. They trusted in him, okay? And he satisfied their hunger and thirst for salvation by the words that he spoke and in the sacrament by his body and blood given to them. Okay, now moving on here, verse 36, he says, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Who comes to Jesus? Yes, but not all sinners come to Jesus. Believers, believers, yeah. Those who believe in him come to him. They would never come to him if they didn't believe in him but they come to him because they believe in him. He's the bread of life. That's why they come to him. I need his life, see? That's why they drink of him. I need his salvation. Okay? For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And throughout John's Gospel, St. John emphasizes this in what he reports to us from Jesus' catechesis. And you have in John's Gospel this singular focus, I came down from heaven to do my Father's will, namely, to lay down my life in death and to take it up again in the resurrection to give life to the world. It's Jesus. I don't know if you uh, realize this. In a familiar Bible passage, John 3.16, it's Jesus who is speaking those words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John is reporting those words, but Jesus is the one who said them, and he speaks of them about himself. And that encapsulates the will of God that plays itself out through the entirety of uh, the gospel of St. John. This is the will of the Father, verse 39, who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Now, all that the Father has given him, who is being spoken of here? The elect, the believers, the elect, the call to faith. This ought to be of inestimable comfort to you, that the Father, like here, Tom, the Father gave you to Jesus. He elected you to salvation in him, and through faith in him you belong to Jesus. According to this, This is the will of the Father, that I should lose nothing of those whom he has given me, but should raise it up at the last day. So it's the promise of belonging to Christ. So if you have loved ones who have departed from the faith, pray on the basis of that promise. You've called them by name. They are yours. It is your will that you would lose none of them. Bring them home and on the last day raise them up again. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Notice in verse 4, true seeing is what? Believing. That's right. You see your sin, you see your need, and you see your Savior. You believe that your sin is real, you believe that you need a Savior, and you believe that Jesus is that Savior. Seeing is believing. Notice at the end of verse 39 and the end of verse 40, I will raise him up at the last day. That is the promise of what? The resurrection of the body. The resurrection of the body. I know that my Redeemer lives, and even after my skin is destroyed, this I know. In my flesh I shall see God. There is already victory over death and the grave. And as wonderful it is that the, um, the, the vaccine was developed so very quickly for the COVID virus, that vaccine still cannot save us from death. Only Christ can. And the promise of the resurrection to eternal life comes through Christ. It is why the ancients called the Lord's Supper the medicine of immortality, that you partake of it for the forgiveness of sins and the promise and pledge of eternal life. So in verses 39 and 40, Jesus promises resurrection to those who believe.
1: Paul? Uh,
2: verse 39, what does the antecedent of the word
0: In verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me. That's the end. I should lose nothing but raise it, all that the Lord has given uh, the, it says it here, but it's him. It's all the Christians that the, that the Father has given to Jesus because of his faithful work. So that's the antecedent, all Christians who believe in Jesus. Verse 41. The Jews then murmured against him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Now, I don't have this in the bullet, but what does that imply then? I am the bread that came down from heaven. What does that imply about Jesus? That he is the Savior? that That he's the one that was sent? Keep going. Ratchet it up further. If he is the bread of life that came down from heaven, he's claiming to be God. Okay? He's claiming to be God. That's why they're murmuring. And the murmuring here echoes the murmuring of the children of Israel in the Old Testament when they were uh, rejecting God's deliverance. And they said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Now I can imagine that second and third generation Christians in Palestine after Jesus' resurrection may have well remembered this kind of uh, rejection in other extended family members who did not embrace Jesus as the Christ, but rejected him because their children played with him in the sandboxes of Nazareth. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. So the drawing of the people to Jesus is the process, if you will, by which God brings a person to what? To faith, to repentance and faith in Christ, yes. And And notice how that goes back the Holy Spirit. We saw it yesterday in the gospel reading, how he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He will take of what is Jesus and declare it to you. By the Holy Spirit's work through the word of the gospel, the Father draws people to Jesus in repentance and faith. That's why, remember last week, we talked about the proper order of the divine service. Preaching always comes first, then the Lord's Supper, because through the preaching of God's word, even the baptized faithful are to be drawn to Jesus in renewed faith to receive his body and blood In a salutary way. So you don't reverse the order. All right. So then, as it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Again, these are claims of deity and clearly expressing the Trinitarian faith, God, Father, God, Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Who is that one? Christ. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. So to eat of Christ, you become immortal. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now, up until this point, he has been using bread as a metaphor. And what do I mean by that? Sometimes as Lutherans, we're nervous about anything that that smacks of the idea of symbol. But here, bread is a metaphor. Jesus is not a loaf of wonder bread. Right? You can take a slice out of it in that sense. So now he shifts from the metaphor to the reality. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh. Is flesh a metaphor here? No, that's the reality which I shall give for the life of the world. Where did he give his flesh for the life of the world? He gave his flesh for the life of the world upon the cross. And as the verbs indicate in the words of institution, he also gives his flesh to us in the sacrament of the altar. This is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. Our flesh cannot save His flesh does. The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they understood exactly what he was talking about. And if Jesus were using hyperbole, exaggeration, now would be the time for him to have said, oh, no, 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 you're you're taking it a little bit too far. But instead, he doubles down. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So again, he doesn't use the metaphor of bread. Now he uses the reality of flesh and blood, which according to this gives life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And here again, the promise of the resurrection, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, or truly food. My blood is drink indeed, or truly drink. The food and the drink that satisfy so you don't hunger or thirst anymore. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That's the language of Holy Communion again. He takes everything from us and he gives us his life and righteousness and salvation in exchange. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. (laughs) Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now the eating of this bread presupposes faith. Who eats of this bread and drinks of this cup? He who believes in Christ and hungers and thirsts for the salvation that he gives. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So even here, this was a liturgical setting where uh, Jesus taught these things. Returning back to um, the second-to-last bullet on the first page, what are these Jews rejecting about Jesus? And I gave you the answer. They're rejecting that he is the Son of God. That's why they murmured against him. They're rejecting the notion that he is the source of life and salvation by God's work, by him doing the will of his Father, not by their works, which he condemned earlier. By calling himself the bread of heaven and the bread of life, he teaches us that he is the sole source of life and salvation. And that's what they rejected in impenitence and unbelief. These are the Jews in the synagogue that came from having experienced the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, they rightly conclude, hey, he's the prophet. But they had the wrong theology. See, he's, he's like Moses. He's the one promised. Yes, but what they were wrong on, he's come to reward us for our works, to pat us on the back, to put food in our refrigerator, to satisfy our cravings like the children of Israel. It would have been better to go back to the flesh pots of Egypt. At least we had good food there. Okay? So, um, all right, I asked bread is a metaphor for his flesh. What does Jesus promise is the gift of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, eternal life, and the resurrection of the body. What prevented so many of the Jews from receiving the salvation Jesus promised in his flesh and blood? What prevented them from receiving the salvation promised in his flesh and blood?
2: Their own self-righteousness. Their own self-righteousness. Their own self-righteousness.
0: Their unbelief. unbelief, Their impenitence. Correct. Now, John 6 is often, and rightly so, extolled as a chapter in which Jesus teaches much about faith. What is faith? Faith is a work of God. What is faith? Faith is repentance that turns away from self and trusts in Jesus and in the sacrifice that he made for us. So repentant faith receives. I put repentant in parentheses because faith is, by very definition, not simply head knowledge. Like, I believe it was hot yesterday. (laughs) I don't trust in that. Okay? So faith is, by definition, repentant when it's faith in Christ. Unbelief rejects. So the baptized faithful in faith, hunger and thirst for Jesus, that's why they want to be in the divine service, where his word is. That's why they want to receive his body and blood. Because the promise is, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, a spiritual food, the medicine of immortality, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up at the last day. So the promise, the comfort, the assurance of that, and everything that he is, he gives to us, and everything that's sinful and dross in us, he takes from us. Okay. Now we're going to go into the catechism, page 289 in Lutheran Catechesis, uh, which actually summarizes so much of what we've said. Susan? I think it's really interesting that in here you talk about seeing the Father, no one
2: has seen the Father. But the next time a conversation comes up about seeing the Father is on Thursday night after the institution of the Lord's Supper.
0: Yes, isn't it interesting? She says, uh, uh, no one has seen the Father except he who came down from heaven. And the next time he's talking about seeing the Father is on Maundy Thursday night when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And then further in his catechesis, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So we see the Father's heart of love. We see the Father's will. We see the Father's plan of salvation, all centered in Jesus who gave his body and blood into death on the altar of the cross. All right, so in the uh, the catechism, Given what we've just read, and we could have gone to other passages as well, most notably simply the words of institution, and that's what Luther focuses on in the Catechism. We recited those last week. You hear them every single Sunday. You can't have the Lord's Supper without those words. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. So I'll ask you the questions here, and you can respond, and then we'll make a couple of summary notes. What is the benefit of this eating and drinking? These words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, show us that in the sacrament, forgiveness of sins, life and salvation are given us through these words. For where there is forgiveness of sins there is also life and salvation. Now, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, in bold type there, are meant to highlight for you, these are Jesus' own words. My body given for you, my blood shed for you. For what purpose? For the forgiveness of sins. Now notice, in the words of Jesus, when he institutes the Lord's Supper, is the word life mentioned? Our Lord Jesus Christ, in the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when he went and gave him thanks. He broke it, gave it to us. Is the word life mentioned? No. Is the word salvation mentioned? No. Only the phrase, the forgiveness of sins, or the remission of sins. So then, some might ask the question: How can you say that the Lord's Supper gives life and salvation? You could say it gives forgiveness of sins because it says so, but you can't say life and salvation. What would you say in reply to that? Well, if
1: you have the forgiveness of sins, you don't think can result is life and okay. salvation.
0: If you have the forgiveness of sins, the only thing that can result is life because the cause of death is sin. You take away the problem of sin, the result is life. And sin is the cause of condemnation. Therefore, if you solve the problem of sin the result is salvation. And that's why the Catechism says, where there's forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. So the forgiveness of sin, the word of Christ gives the sacrament its benefits. So last week, the word of Christ declares what it is, his body and blood. This week, the word of Christ proclaims its benefits. Faith believes Christ's word. We eat and drink because of the word. Take eat. Drink of it, all of you. What a wonder. In the sacramental eating, we are in communion with the very flesh and blood of Christ that was offered up into death upon the cross. So it's either going to save you or it's going to kill you. And it saves those who believe. And it kills those who, in impenitence and unbelief, don't believe. So I mention this now as a prelude. Why do we practice closed communion? Because we want everyone who partakes to be baptized, to be repentant, to trust in Jesus alone for their salvation, to hunger and thirst for his body and blood for the forgiveness of their sins. If they're coming for some other reason, it would be irresponsible to offer them the sacrament. Do you follow? And we'll, we'll outline this very specifically next week. So oftentimes the practice of closed communion is perceived as being a very unloving thing to do. But in reality, it's the opposite. So to have pastoral conversations, to find out, were you admitted to the Lord's Supper immediately when you started visiting with David and Anna? No. We had some teaching, didn't we? Yes, we did. We had some questions, didn't we? Lots. Did you feel unloved by all of that? No. Did you feel loved
2: by that? Yes, I
0: did. Okay. So until you had certainty of what it was that you were receiving, not only his body and blood, but why? Not because of your works, but because of Christ's work. Mm -hmm. See? So, yes, it takes a lot of pastoral care to do those kinds of questionings but we're interested in baptized repentant faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins we're also interested in people belonging to congregations and churches that are going to support that confession of faith so if you belong to it if you believe that Jesus gives you his body and blood for example but belong to a church that doesn't teach that why are you in that church Perhaps you should go to a church that actually teaches what Jesus teaches, which is an aspect we'll talk about next week, where in the Holy Communion, it is a communal and corporate confession of faith. Okay. Um, let's do the next question. How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Certainly not just eating and drinking do these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacrament. Whoever believes these words has exactly what they say, forgiveness of sins. Now, that's not because faith causes forgiveness, that he who believes these words has exactly what they say, forgiveness. It's not because faith causes forgiveness, but rather faith receives forgiveness. You see the difference there? So, going back to the John 6 catechesis, repentant faith receives, impenitent unbelief rejects. Faith receives Christ, unbelief rejects Christ. Period. Period. So uh, a couple of these other things on letter E, this is my body which is given for you, and then this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, again from last week, is performative speech that gives what it says. See, we believe as Christians that a miracle is taking place every single divine service. The miracle of Jesus giving us his body and blood by his word. For the benefits of forgiveness, life, and salvation. That's what we mean by performative speech. It is no less of a miracle than when God said into the darkness at the beginning of creation, let there be light, and there was light. Or let the earth bring forth abundantly. That's performative speech. The cup. Again, this is a review from last week. The cup is. It's not the cups are, but the cup is signifies the holy communion or holy fellowship with Christ and one another in Christ. Out of the cup of blessing in the Passover, Christ instituted the cup of salvation in the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Yes, it is. The bread which we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Yes, it is. Now, let me pause here. Some have, from time to time, wondered about, okay, you're extolling the common cup as the primary uh, mode of distributing the Lord's blood uh, because of the Passover, because of the communal nature. You know, we share fully in Christ and we even share fully in the infirmities and sicknesses of others. What about the bread? If you're going to extol the common cup, should you not extol, you know, the idea of a common singular loaf? Uh, the difference, however, is you can commune from a single cup. The only way to commune from a single loaf of bread is to cut it or break it apart. Unless this happens in your home, if you do this on Thanksgiving, you have a loaf of freshly baked bread, and you just pass that loaf around, and everybody takes a bite out of it. I don't know of any place where that happens. Even in Africa, they break open to dip into oils and hot spices and so forth. So the very mode in which bread is consumed is in pieces or slices. But in the Passover, and, and that would have been uh, true of the unleavened bread in the Passover, they took from that loaf and then they, they broke it apart so that everyone could partake of the unleavened bread. But the cup of blessing was the singular cup passed around. And as I said before, I mean, for, for uh, sensitivity... To people's concerns, we do offer individual cups, but we keep the common cup as the primary expression of the Holy Communion. And some of my colleagues have argued, well, you can never get sick from the common cup. I don't prefer that argument, even though I do believe that the incidence is rather uh, remote especially how we care for it, I would rather fully accept that maybe you can. And that that's a greater expression of what Jesus did. Remember Mrs. Moeller, who had suffered a stroke last week, I told you about how she was able to partake by the moistened host in tinction, and then I, after seeing her six months, when I came one day and placed it in her mouth, she could not. And so I retrieved it and consumed it myself. Jesus took up our sicknesses and infirmities. He carried our sorrows. It's why we are not afraid to take up the sicknesses and infirmities of others. That's part of what the Holy Communion is about. So those are those two other bullets there, sub-bullets. He takes all our sin, burdens, sicknesses, and suffering and we receive his forgiveness, life, salvation, comfort, and healing. In Holy Communion, we together confess our sins, and together forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, sicknesses, and sorrows, and rejoice with one another in Christ who makes us one in him. And we share all things with one another in the body of Christ. And that's why I said, I mean, during the uh, coronavirus pandemic, uh, I didn't have an option as a pastor on whether or not I conduct divine services. But it might be risky for you. You know, you're pushing the age of 60. Now you are 60. Well, that's quite beside the point. This is the medicine of immortality that gives forgiveness, life, and salvation, that strengthens the health of the church, both individual members and corporately. So it is more essential than food and drink for the body. Now, there may be concerns that others have, extreme elderly and high risk, that for which provisions are taken to care for them, which the church always has done. But simply to do what so many churches have done, utterly and completely closed down, is... Um, A rejection of what Christ has told them to do. So, caring for the sick and the vulnerable is is one thing, but closing down the church in the name of fear gives the impression that something is more important than Christ. And when you look at John 6, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up at the last day. My flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. That's anything but tangential or unessential or unimportant. All right, finally, the liturgical actions and care of the Lord's Supper are intended to hold up the real presence of Christ's true body and blood in treating it with the utmost respect and reverence. And this is where we'll close today as we summarize in those terms what the divine service is about. I think it would be a better way to look at it that... What we do in handling the elements is more about what the elements are and the respect for them than it is about a concern over sanitation. Now, what is it that we do? The the wine is almost 40-proof wine. It's not fortified. It's real wine, grape wine, but that's got significant... Uh, alcohol content to it it's in a silver and a gold chalice did you know that those metals particularly gold uh, are have an adverse effect on things like viruses it's a scientific fact so you got which glass does not by the way so you got the gold lined chalice and the high content grape wine the gold and silver patent which is the plate and then the pastor if you notice uh pastor gelbach does it before he comes down i do it up here after the sermon washes hands Uh, you do the same thing on thanksgiving don't you before you you don't you don't stick your hand in and sample things and then you know you wash your hands at the very least it's not polite to not do that and then the uh, alcohol-soaked purificators that continue to wipe the chalice and so forth. But I'd, again, I'd like you to see that not as we're doing this because we're afraid of disease, but rather we're using these kinds of sacred vessels and this careful treatment because it's his body and blood. You follow the, the, the difference in nuance there? Um, And what we spoke against last week, plastic cups that are then thrown in the garbage and that go out to the landfill. What we do, even when we use the individual as well as the others, is they are rinsed with plain water and poured into the earth, okay? It's not that you can um, consume every molecule, but it treats it with a dignity and a respect that is accorded. The word of God. With Christ's own performative words. And in the divine service, we enter into the go ahead, Susan. The priests in the Old Testament, with the sacrifices, they washed, even though there wasn't eating. It wasn't about washing because of germs. That's what the laver was outside of the um They washed
2: because those were holy things.
0: Correct. Uh, I, will, um, I will review the uh, canticles next week at the beginning that follow along this line of thought. Let us prepare for the sacrament by the singing of Luther's hymn on the Lord's Supper, 617. O Lord, we praise thee, bless thee, and adore thee. Hymn 617. O almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them, and I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in this stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, in the waters of holy baptism you have united your children in the suffering and death of your Son, Jesus Christ, cleansing them by his blood. Renew in us the gift of your Holy Spirit that we may live in daily contrition and repentance with a faith that ever clings to our Savior. Deliver us from the power of Satan. Preserve us from false and dangerous doctrines, that we may remain faithful in hearing Christ's word and receiving his body and blood. By the Lord's Supper, strengthen us to believe that no one can make satisfaction for sin but Christ alone, Enable us to find joy and comfort only in him, learning from the Lord's Supper to love you and our neighbor and to bear our cross with patience and joy until the day of the resurrection of our bodies to life immortal. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. Also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the
2: Lord.
0: Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is, right to give him thanks and grace. it is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God. And most especially are we bound to praise you on this day for the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, the very Paschal Lamb, who was sacrificed for us and bore the sins of the world. By his dying, he has destroyed death, and by his rising again, he has restored to us everlasting life. Therefore, with Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John, and with all the witnesses of the resurrection, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth. heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. By his death he has redeemed us from bondage to sin and death. And by his resurrection he has delivered us into new life in him. Grant us to keep the feast in sincerity and truth faithfully eating his body given into death and drinking his life's blood poured out for our salvation until we pass through death to the promised land of life eternal. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God that takest away the sin of the world, have Have mercy mercy upon upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have Have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world,
1: grant Grant us thy peace. Amen. Amen.
0: Body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, strengthen and preserve you, body and soul, in the true faith, unto life everlasting. Depart in peace.
1: Christ given for you.
0: body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. O God the Father, the fountain and source of all goodness, who in loving kindness sent your only begotten Son into the flesh, we thank you that for his sake you have given us pardon and peace in this sacrament. And we ask you not to forsake your children, but always to rule our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit that we may be enabled constantly to serve you. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.
1: Alleluia.
0: Let us bless the Lord. Thanks
2: be to God.
0: The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you.